you ever compare your church with others? Have you ever kind of looked around or you visited another church and vacation and you think, boy, I wish we could be like them? Well, I tell you, it's very easy to do when we read about the, the early church, isn't it? I mean, we've been reading the opening pages of Acts. Now, there's excitement. Okay? There's, there's harmony. There, there's love. And as we're going to learn this morning, and there was also fear. There was a right kind of fear. So join with me as I'm going to begin reading in... Um, Chapter 4, beginning verse 32. And just for those who are visiting, if you're using the, the church Bibles, you'll, you'll see my words are a little bit differently. I'm reading from a different translation, uh, the English Standard Version. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And the very first opening line sets the focal point. Indeed, it's the dream of every pastor for his church. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, how was this, this blessed harmony played out? Well, we're told the apostles themselves, they were continuing their, their bold testimony to Jesus' resurrection. And then we're told that there's a special blessing, a, a great grace that came upon everyone. What was that grace? Well, there was not a needy person among them. Which is odd because the majority of the people in Jerusalem would have been poor. So what we're being told is that the church members, they did not merely share with each other, but those with, with wealth and property, they actually sold that property so as to share the proceeds with members who were, who were poor. Now, let's note the traits that Luca wrote the Acts that he, he presents about this kind of this share of the wealth system. First of all, it seems to be spontaneous. I mean, there's not, doesn't say the apostles began to teach on the subject of giving to the poor. They're preaching the resurrection. Their church members are taking care of one another. Now, this concern. Where did it come from? Well, it doesn't take place in, in kind of a cultural vacuum. This is in uh, Jerusalem. This is in Judea. Uh, this is what the Jewish people do. They help one's neighbor. They give alms to the poor. This is their practice because 
That's what's taught in their scriptures. In fact, there's only one question for the Jews of that day about this command to to love your neighbor, to care for your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Well, certainly the church members knew that their fellow members were neighbors and they are just doing what, what would just have come naturally. The church would naturally be concerned for taking care of its own. So it's spontaneous. It just happens. Secondly, we're told that there's some kind of system developed for the distribution. The members weren't just selling their, their property and they're getting this money and then they themselves are going to one another and helping each other out. We're told that the money is laid at the apostles' feet. And what that simply means, it's taken to them and they were given the responsibility to then distribute it. We're going to find out in chapter 6 that the system needed a little bit of tweaking on there. But that's the system that's happening here. Now, we'll note that one could take the text, and, and there have been those who have looked at this, and they say, well, you know, what this is teaching then is that the way that we ought to be living, our economy ought to be either outright communistic or socialist. I mean, here they are. They do not have... Or they treated everything in common. Well, let's take that seriously. The evidence that we have, from what we can understand, particularly as we go continue through the New Testament, that the property that they're selling is not their own homes. It's extra property. The church did not own the property. They did not own any property. People were selling the property to other owners. Okay. They're merely selling that as a means to get cash. And with that cash, they're then donating it to the church. And you think about it, it would have been very strange for Jewish believers, which they all were, to sell their family heritage. I mean, their, their culture, as taught in scriptures, held to the sacred principle that each person should own the land that had been allotted to his family should be passed down. That's why they had what the year of Jubilee was supposed to have been all about. If you had lost your land, it was supposed to be given back to you. So how did this kind of everything in common then play out? Well, it's, kind of, it's not difficult to understand. I think it's in the same way that, that we make a statement to our own family or maybe to some close friends, whenever we say this, whatever is mine is yours. And what do we mean? Whenever you have need, you can turn to me, and I'm going to be there for you. That's what it means for them to have things in common. And then thirdly, or finally, Peter is, as Peter is going to make plain to Ananias, whatever property that a church member owned, It did belong to that owner. And he could do whatever he pleased with it. He didn't have to sell it. If he chose to sell it, then he had the right to do whatever he wanted to with his money. He could have given all of it. He could have given a part of it or none of this. So this is not a a system imposed upon the church. This is just simply what people are doing out of their own hearts. Now, having said this, I mean, Luke, who's writing this, clearly wants us to understand the radical lifestyle 
that faith in the resurrection of the Lord is producing in the early believers. Okay. They were not regarding their salvation as just kind of me and Jesus, an individual experience with God. Rather, as again would have been very natural in their culture, they would understand that they are believers, they are followers together. Okay. They were a community bound to one another. And it was a community commitment that they gladly undertook regardless of whatever economic or social standing there may have been. So we just have this wonderful church community. Everyone is feeling love for one another. And yet, there is a serpent in the church's garden. Let's continue reading now in chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And the sins of Ananias and Sapphira were really twofold. There was just greed, and then there was lying. And when you put those things together, it makes up the sin that really has plagued the church ever since their time. And that is the sin of hypocrisy. Now, they had joined the church, possibly, maybe, you know, that they are true converts. But their hearts are divided. Money remains their idol. Now, it might be just a, a love for money that they have, or it could be the fear of not being provided for, and they, they could not part. Whatever it is, they could not part with all of their proceeds. But again, now remember, no one had asked them to in the first place. No one had told them to sell the property. No one required them to give a portion. No one said they had to give it all away. So what's happening? They evidently felt pressure, didn't they? They wanted to appear generous like their fellow church members. They wanted it both ways. They wanted to hold on to that idol of money, 
while being praised for sacrificial devotion to Jesus and for love of everyone else. That's hypocrisy. And it holds special disapproval because it's basically using the Lord's name to cover oneself. I mean, it's bad enough to be a hypocrite. It's far worse to make the Lord an accomplice to one's hypocrisy. When you put all that together, little wonder that God's judgment was visited upon Ananias and Sapphira through death. Now, this death of this hypocritical couple was a a fearful sign and wonder of the presence and power of God that was happening with this new movement. But most of the signs and wonders were of the healing kind. And pick back up with me now in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is just an area of the temple courts. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And these were all healed. And what do these healings and and exorcisms signify? Well, that the power of Jesus' name that we learned last week is real. They signified the reality of what the apostles were testifying to in their preaching, which is the resurrection of Jesus. New life is taking place, and so there is healing, there is the casting out of demons, new power has come through Jesus. Now, the resurrection, by the way, you probably are noticing now, that is the continuous theme of the apostles' preaching. That's what there are witnesses about. Well, I tell you, there is so much to discuss, points to learn, and lessons to learn from this text, but I'm going to have to keep them to, to, to three here. Looking back over this text, the first thing that we can learn about the church is that this church practiced right love. Now, what is right love? Well, the Apostle John would later write about it in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Let me read it as he explains what this love is. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this clearly is the type of love, though again, it only speaks of the, the apostles proclaiming the resurrection. When they are gathering in their in their homes, when they're at the temple courts, they certainly are speaking of this love to their congregation. But again, what Luke wants to to really bring out in that passage is that this isn't just a matter of the congregation. They're listening to their apostles, and they said, you need to love and help out others. And so they go, yeah, okay, I, I will start doing that. 
pointing out is a transformation has just supernaturally happened in their lives through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the resurrection. The Word, the Spirit of God, were working in them, and it was transforming their devotion to God and their love for one another. You know, Jesus had taught the disciples that this kind of love would be their mark. He said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the way we take care of each other, that is what demonstrates to the world the love of Christ. The way that we love, through taking care of each other, it bears witness to our faith. That's what the the epistle of James is about. If you're going to have faith, if you're going to say that you have faith, it must be displayed through works of love. And so that leaves us the obvious question, doesn't it? Do we have such love? Now, one way to measure our love that this text would lead us to think about is to review, well, how do we spend our money? Now, there's, also, there's certainly how much is our giving uh, to the church and Christian ministries and charities. You know, that's important. But he's also talking about everything that we do outside of these formal structures. How does the way that we spend our money express that we, that we love our neighbor, that we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord? How alert are we to the needs and the welfare of one another and our neighbor? How easily do we give, whether the giving be money or time or deed? So that's lesson one about right love. The second lesson is about wrong fear. Let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira. They were moved by the wrong fear. And by fear, I mean reverencing and trusting false idols. They reverenced, they feared the opinion of others. Now, it's right to desire a good name. It is wrong to make it such an idol that we will do anything to earn that name that we don't deserve. They wanted to be thought well of. They wanted to be seen to be like their brothers and sisters, that we too are transformed followers of Christ. Now, it may be that they were true believers. I mean, we're, we're really not told. Okay? They're part of that church. And one thing just simply to recognize is that we don't all have the same measure of faith. We don't all have the same calling of sacrifice. But we do all have that same inner desire to fit in, to be seen as better than we are. You know, nothing had been required of Ananias and Severe. Maybe, maybe they weren't being called to go sell property. But it was this call, this, this desire, this desire to fit in with everyone else, to be seen as generous like everyone else. And so it led them to further sin. And that's what will happen with us. Our unchecked desire will lead us to sin that we never intended. Now, the couple's other idol, of course, was that desire for money. And it can spring from different 
motives. I mean, there's outright greed. People just just want to be have lots of money. Okay. Maybe that was their motive, but I tend to think that their motive was one of security. They're thinking we're to give away all of the proceeds. I mean, what about a rainy day? Or for that area of the world, they're not thinking about a rainy day. They're thinking about what about a time of famine, which would take place, by the way, in Jer- for Jerusalem and Judea in, a co- in the coming years. Well, what then? All of us like to give. We agree that we should give to good causes. The question is at what sacrifice? What are we willing to deny ourselves? What are we willing to place at risk? And we have to examine ourselves about this. This is what the text is leading us to. It's because it's easy. It is easy to think that we're trusting God while we are feeling no great commands from God about what we possess. It's easy to regard ourselves as faithful followers of Jesus when our financial accounts are doing very well. You know, I've no doubt that the rich young ruler, he would have gladly followed Jesus. I I don't have any doubt about that. It's that part about going and selling everything that he possessed. That's what caught him off guard. Now, I have no word from the Lord for any individual, but our text, again, causes us to examine our hearts and to look and see how much of the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira could be in us. Now, by the way, there was another group of people who had the wrong fear. They appeared back in verse 13 of chapter 5. It said, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The people, the rest who, those who were not joining the Christian gatherings in the temple courts, you know, they're they're all there, they're watching what's happening, they don't join. Why? Who do they fear? Well, the religious authorities. They feared the pressures that they were going to face if they publicly joined the followers of Jesus. Their reputation. Maybe even their livelihood, to a degree, would be at stake. They would be in the same situation as Christians, many places around the world, find themselves, and even as we now in our own country, will increasingly find the embarrassment, the difficulty of publicly aligning ourselves as followers of Jesus. So there's the the right law, there's the wrong fear, and then there's the the right fear. What is the right fear? Well, it's referred to in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This fear is the fear of the Lord. This is the fear that leads to reverence, to trust, to obedience before our Lord Jesus Christ who rules our lives. See, one thing, I mean, this passage with Ananias and Sapphira and, you know, being killed, and, I mean, we, it's the one that causes us the most problems, I think, as we go through Acts. But however much trouble it should cause us, it should make us realize this. Jesus is not a mere kind of spark to religious life. 
His resurrection is not simply about how, you know, we should all just feel good. We should all feel good. It's springtime and, and God loves us. Now, Jesus' resurrection attests that he is Lord. And to be his follower means to be obedient followers who fear him and no one else. It means to trust Jesus alone and nothing, no one else. It means to worship him alone with no place for any false idols. You know, everyone, everybody professes to love Jesus. I mean, even out there in the outside world, I mean, he's so nice. You know, how do you fear Jesus? You know, well, that's what is being brought before us. Do we fear our, our Savior and Lord? Do we give our allegiance to him and him alone? Remember, as we learned from last week, there is no other name under heaven by which to be saved. But understand that Jesus saves all of us. He will not take just the portion of you, the portion that you feel safe giving over to him. He takes all or nothing. He is all to us or nothing. Well, right fear will lead us to this right obedience. So right love, it will lead us to provide for one another. Right fear will lead us to right worship. It will lead us to right trust. Lead us to right obedience. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross, who was buried, who was raised in all glory and victory. And our Father, we give you praise and we worship our great Lord Jesus Christ, the victorious one who has ascended on high, and we gladly fall before him and worship him. May by your spirit all the more that we put our trust in him and fully obey him. In his name we pray. Amen. And for the hymn that we're going to close with, and as you're turning to that, let me just note that um, uh, I, I regard it for myself as the hymn that most clearly fully captures what Christ has done on the cross. It gives us that fearful reverence an understanding of what it should mean for us. Come on.